0: After the Buddha's enlightenment spent about seven weeks underneath the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya uh, contemplating the realization, the profound realizations of his awakening. And then he wondered who might be receptive to these teachings. And he thought of the five ascetics with whom he had practiced for the last the previous six years, who were then living in Sarnath, which is a small village across the river from Benares. So after having spent seven weeks in and around the Bodhi tree, the Buddha set off on foot, and it said it took him about six weeks to reach Sarnath. And he gave his first teaching on the full moon of June, uh, the name of that first discourse is called Setting the Wheel of the Dharma in Motion. So, this was the first discourse expressing his awakened realization. And I find it inspiring to think of just the setting of this wheel of the Dharma in motion and realizing that this wheel has rolled across continents, across oceans, and somehow ended up in Woodacre. <laughs> And here we are, <laughs> really as the result of that first discourse. So it's pretty amazing. So he gave that talk, and one of the five ascetics became a stream-enter, which is the first stage of awakening. And then the Buddha taught the whole group for a few more days, and all the rest became stream enterers as well. <laughs> which is the advantage of having the Buddha as your guide. <laughs> oh, my sympathies. <laughs> and then he gave his second discourse, which is called the Lakana Sutta, which is the discourse on the characteristic of non-self. And upon hearing this discourse, all five of these ascetics became fully enlightened, became ahans. So we're going to try and replicate that this evening. (laughs) So listen carefully. (laughs) You know, the teaching of non-self or no-self is really at the heart of the Buddha's realization but unlike the truths of impermanence or the truths of suffering, of dukkha which are easily understood you know, even if we have not fully actualized these understandings in our lives but they're not hard to understand that things change and that things are unsatisf- ultimately unsatisfying but understanding the truth of non-self is really not obvious at all and it's almost counterintuitive it runs counter to our everyday common sense understanding of who we are and how we live in the world and our language most most languages keep reinforcing this with the i as the subject you know of most verbs so the language itself keeps reinforcing this sense that there's an I or a self as the subject of all experience, as the reference point for all experience. And yet it was precisely the teachings on non-self that led the five ascetics to full awakening, to full liberation So tonight I'd like to just explore some few elements of this discourse and to see how we can come to a deeper understanding, a more deeply felt understanding of what non-self actually means and how we experience it, both in our practice and in our lives. And as you listen to some of the words of the Buddha, which I'll be reading, just some short excerpts from the discourse, please, if you can, listen as if you're hearing the words directly from the Buddha. So you're not listening to it as kind of a philosophic description of reality. That's not what the Buddha was about. His teachings are all instructions, there are things for us to do in order to realize the truths he's talking about. So see if you can let the teachings in in that way. In reading from this discourse, there's one word which I will leave untranslated. And that's the word dukkha, which we've spoken about quite a bit this week. And the Four Noble Truths all revolve around this one word. There's the truth of dukkha, the cause of dukkha, the end of dukkha, and the path leading to the end of dukkha. So it's really important we have a clear understanding of what this word means. The problem is that there's no one English word which captures the fullness of its meaning and so it often leads to some confusion of understanding <coughs> as you know i'm probably familiar with dukkha is often translated as suffering the truth of suffering and at times this translation is completely appropriate <coughs> you know we're all <coughs> we're all quite familiar with the pain and discomfort and suffering excuse me <coughs> that can arise in this body and mind. So dukkha is suffering, I think we can relate to and understand quite easily. But then how do we reconcile the Buddha's very far-reaching declaration that all conditioned things which means everything we experience How do we reconcile (coughs) dukkha as suffering with the statement, all conditioned things are dukkha? Because there are many experiences in our lives which are pleasurable and which we enjoy and which are agreeable and are delightful. So how does dukkha relate to those kinds of experiences? Hear words other than suffering will give a more complete sense of what dukkha means. So we might translate it, dukkha in these contexts as unreliable or ultimately unsatisfying or insecure. So we can experience you know, the various pleasures of life and we do. And at the same time have the understanding that these pleasures which bring us a kind of happiness but we can still understand even these pleasures and delights as being unreliable precisely because they're impermanent. We can understand them as being ultimately unsatisfying even though they satisfy us in the moment we understand they're not going to last. And so that's the dukkha of even pleasurable experiences. In listening to the discourse, you want to have this more expanded understanding of what dukkha means, so that you realize that it does include every aspect of experience. All conditioned things are dukkha, even the pleasant, even the agreeable, even the things we enjoy in the sense that they are ultimately unreliable. So that, I think, is not that hard to understand. I think all have the experience of that. It's this understanding of dukkha that is intimately related to the realization of non-self. And that's what I want to uh, begin the evening with. The relationship of the understanding of the unreliability, the dukkha, of all conditioned things. How is that related or how does that help us understand the teaching on non-self of no-self? Because it's precisely this relationship of dukkha and non-self when we see it clearly, that opens the doorway to greater freedom. So this is from the Lakana Sutta, it's just a small part of it. So as most of you know, the discourses open up classically with the phrase, thus have I heard, because it's the Buddha's disciple Ananda who was reciting the suttas after the Buddha's death. Uh, for memory, and thus have I heard, and then he repeats what he had heard from the Buddha. So thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living in Benares, near Benares, in the deer park at Sarnath, and there he addressed the bhikkhus of the group of five, that is these five ascetics. Now this is just a little footnote. If you remember the first night I spoke of how bhikkhus is often referred to uh, as monastics, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, monks and nuns. But in its more general meaning, it means everyone on the path. So right here in this first discourse, these five ascetics were not yet monks in the Buddha order. He hadn't even begun uh, really teaching yet, and yet he addressed them as bhikkhus. So when you hear bhikkhus, it's you. Okay, so bhikkhus. Venerable sir, they replied. The blessed one said this. Bhikkhus, form, which means the body, or material elements, the physical elements, is non-self. So in the sutta, they're they using the word form as the translation of the Pali word rupa, but I think it makes it more immediate if we hone in on the particular meaning of the body, because then it'll be easier to relate these teachings to our own experience. So bhikkhus, the body is non-self. Were the body self, then this body would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to determine Let my body be like this. Let my body not be like this. But because the body is non-self, it leads to affliction, and it is not possible to determine. Let my body be like this. Let my body not be like this. Okay, so it's pretty simple but with some profound implications and so the Buddha is highlighting two aspects of Dukkha here and both of these aspects of Dukkha are going to relate to the realization of non-self so the first aspect of Dukkha that the Buddha is highlighting here is that the body or the physical elements the material elements lead to affliction So that's a pretty direct statement. And the second aspect of dukkha is that the elements, this body, these physical elements, are ungovernable. They are not subject to our will. We can't say, oh, let my body be like this, let my body be like that. It doesn't work like that. The body is following its own natural laws. So we need to really look and investigate how these two aspects are at play in our lives. Because again, if you listen to this and it's just, oh yeah, this is the Buddhist take on things, it doesn't really have much transformative value. The transformation happens when we apply the words directly to our own experience and check it out. You know, is this true? Is it not true? How does it apply? So the question could well arise, how does the body, how do the physical elements lead to affliction? Is that true? It's actually not hard to see, even when we would rather not acknowledge it. We can understand the afflictive nature of the body, the afflictive nature of the physical elements, in some of the most ordinary of our daily activities, I think uh, it was either Ruth or someone mentioned last night, uh, one of the other nights, the affliction of hunger and thirst. Okay, so th- these are just common experiences in the body. But we often don't reflect on these very ordinary experiences of being hungry or thirsty as an affliction of the body, because for most of us, these are easily remedied. You know, we feel a little thirsty, we drink some water. We feel hungry, we take some food. And for most of us, (coughs) this is pretty available. And so we don't stop to pay attention to actually what's motivating us to take food or drink What's motivating us is the feeling of suffering. But because we can so easily address it, we don't really generally stop to think of the body in those terms. Oh, this is an affliction of the body that I need to do something about. But for many millions, maybe billions of people in the world, these remedies are not so easily available. You know, I read that over a billion people in the world don't have access to safe drinking water. A billion people. And maybe that same number or more don't have access to adequate healthy food. In one article I read that in many developing countries Women have to walk over three miles to get water, carrying 25 pounds of water back to their village or where they're living, just as a daily, as a daily undertaking. You know, so for people for whom this is not readily available, the hunger and thirst of the body is clearly seen as an affliction of the body. You know, we can see the afflictive nature uh, of the physical material elements um, in natural disasters. You know, and kind of we're all becoming increasingly aware of the great destructive power of the elements of the fires, you know, and the floods and the earthquakes. These are just physical elements, material elements, doing their thing. It's just nature. And yet we see the huge destructive power that can happen. You know, the looming kind of disastrous consequences of climate change. It's just the physical elements at work. But there's a great afflictive power in the very nature of these elements. a very immediate way of your touching this afflictive nature of the body. And probably my, you know, as you hear those words, do you have some sense of just not wanting to hear them? (laughs) You know, know, just all this afflictive nature of the body, is this what I came here for? But you have to overcome (laughs) that resistance and really check in to see, well, you know, what's really going on? So one very easy place to see this and to experience this is seeing the afflictive nature of the body in the simple necessity to change postures to relieve discomfort. Why do we ever move? You come in and sit down. Why not sit until you get enlightened? That's what it said the Bodhisattva did under the tree. He made this resolve, okay, I'm gonna sit here until full awakening. Oh, fortunately it happened that night. <laughs> but if we were, you know, what would it be like to come into the hall? Okay, okay. I'm in my seat, I'm not moving. After some time the body's gonna get very uncomfortable. It's going to get painful, and we have to shift position to alleviate the pain. So then you stand up. Well, that's more useful. Stand for a few hours. You know, four hours, however long. At a certain point, standing is going to get painful, and you'll have to lie down. Okay, lying down. I once made this experiment, I was in India practicing, and I was so fed up with this affliction of the body, posture, I got a thick piece of foam, and I just lay flat on my back, on the foam, completely supported, nothing crossed, nothing bent, and I thought, great, I can just be here forever. It didn't take that long, until even in that position, the body became uncomfortable. And you have to roll over, you have to move, you have to stretch, whatever. So there's a little uh, tagline describing all this. Movement masks dukkha. Right. Movement obscures the dukkha that the body's actually feeling. So it's an experiment. You know, Just as you go through the day, if you remember, just pay attention to why you move. Whenever you make a movement, what's motivating it? And I think you'll find that for at least a good part of the time, we're moving to alleviate some discomfort. So this, this shows us so uh, immediately what the Buddha is talking about in terms of the afflictive nature of the elements. It's not that it's bad, it's just this is how they are. This is the, this is the nature of the elements. And it's interesting because we're not often paying attention to why we move, and we move habitually, and it masks dukkha it gives us the illusion of thinking that we have some control over the elements. You know, that yeah, this this is me, this body is me, and I can control whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable. Because we haven't really been paying attention to what it is that's causing us to move, to act. Movement masks dukkha. It's helpful to really look at that because... It gives us a very immediate sense of the nature of these elements of the body. But at some time or other, the second aspect of dukkha, not only the afflictive nature, but their ungovernable nature, becomes very obvious that the elements are ungovernable so what does this mean? most likely we'd all like to stay young and healthy with a vigorous active body that responds to what we'd like to do and fulfills our aspirations But the body is not really obliging us in this way. <laughs> Quite without our consent, it gets older <laughs> and it gets sick and different diseases or accidents, and then finally it dies. <laughs> the elements of the body are ungovernable. It's like we don't have control over these things. It's not that it's chaotic; everything is happening lawfully. It's just we haven't made the laws. <laughs> you know, they're following their own laws. So this is not hard to see. But are we paying attention to it? You know, are we, are we really reflecting? Well, yeah, this is the nature of the body, and we don't have control over it. So a, a big relief, if we can absorb this understanding, is that this process, this ungovernable process of the body and the physical elements, and this also applies to all the mental aggregates as well, and we're focusing on the body because it's a very tangible example, but you can think of the same afflictive, ungovernable nature to all of the mental activity as well. It's helpful to just remember that it's not a mistake. It's not that we're doing anything wrong. This is just how things are. This is the Dharma. This is the nature of these physical elements. And so these are the words of the Buddha. For this reason, the body is not self. If the body were self, we should be able to determine, let it be like this, let it not be like that. Bhikkhus, every form of the body, whether past, future, or presently arisen, whether gross or subtle, must with right understanding be regarded thus. Any form of the body should be regarded thus. This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. So we want to take that in. Why is it not I, not mine, not myself? Because the elements of the body lead to affliction and they're not governable. If we really were the owner of the body, we would command it to be always agreeable and pleasant. It's for this reason that the Buddha said, this body, past, present, future, is not I, not mine, not myself. Okay, so maybe we begin to get some glimmer of understanding of this then the question is, what's the response? What do we do do with this? (laughs) Even once we understand the non-self dukkha nature, then how do we relate? What's what's the proper response? Uh, Again, the Buddha gave some very specific instructions. Bhikkhus, that's you. Whatever is not yours, the body, all the mental activity, whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. So right here we have to be a little careful because the word abandon in English has all kinds of connotations. Abandoning in this context doesn't mean to ignore the body or the physical environment, it doesn't mean not taking care of the body or the physical environment. Rather the Buddha is saying, when he's saying abandon, he's really saying abandon the identification with it, abandon the attachment to it, abandon the hope that it will stay a certain way. In a way that's to our liking. All of that is to be abandoned. The attachment, the clinging, the identification. When you have abandoned in this way, this will lead to your welfare and happiness. So one of the problems with all this, and hopefully it's, this is reasonably clear. It's not, these are not esoteric truths. They're often overlooked truths. You know, things that we're just not paying attention to. But they're not difficult to really see and check out in our own experience. But the challenge for us is how do we fully realize this and actualize this in our lives given how strongly conditioned the identification with the body is. This is not an, ins- an insignificant identification. You know, somebody comes up and says, who are you? Well, this is who I am. You know, it's, it's so deeply conditioned, the sense of the body being self. So it takes some work. It, it takes some determined investigation, determined exploration to begin to break the power of this conditioning. So there's one collection of discourses in which the Buddha taught a series of reflections that can have a very powerful effect in cutting through, and helping to cut through our attachment to the body, our identification with the body, our taking of the body to be self. So bhikkhus, there are these five themes which should often be reflected upon. What five? I am subject to old age. I am not exempt from old age. I am subject to illness. I am not exempt from illness. I am subject to death. I am not exempt from death. I must be parted from everyone and everything dear and agreeable to me. I am the owner of my karma, the heir of my karma. I have karma as my origin, karma as actions karma as my relative, karma as my resort. I will be the heir of whatever karma, good or bad that I do." So especially in the first few reflections, there's one phrase embedded in it that for me, it just strikes at the core of our conditioning. I am subject to old age, to disease, to death and I am not exempt. I have just noted so often in myself that I can be going along feeling great and then something untoward happens and there's this surprise. (laughs) I should be exempt. (laughs) You know, we think we are exempt until something happens. I don't think this is just me, <laughs> so I would just uh, suggest that you look in yourself, whether, whether we hold this you know, unnoticed feeling that somehow we go through life until life teaches us otherwise, we're just going through life, yeah, I'm, this is for other people, other people get old, you know, and other people get sick. So this reflection, I just find it really powerful, and and often in these life situations where something happens, disagreeable happens, I'll use that phrase in my mind. It'll come, oh, and I am not exempt, and it really makes things more easeful, because I say this is just the nature of things. This is how things are. So frequently practicing these reflections really can become, can become part of your daily practice. It's a, it's a very good thing to do. Because even though it's stating the obvious, it's not something we often keep in mind. You know, and the reflections are a way of keeping these understandings on the front burner of our lives. So that as we're going through all of the activities and the busyness and the engagement and you know, all the craziness of our lives, you know, there's that quiet place in which we realize, yes, I am subject to old age, and I'm not exempt. Subject to illness, not exempt. Subject to dying, and not exempt. It really, it really keeps the the flame of understanding uh, alive in us. Years ago, I was teaching at Valle in New Mexico. It's a wilderness retreat center, a lot for social and environmental activists. And on the last day of the retreat, I was just we were going for a hike, and I had a little accident, hyper-extended my knee. Uh, we were walking on some slippery rocks. Came back, and I was giving the talk that night, and in those years, I was still sitting cross-legged. And I had the thought, mm, I did not sit cross-legged, but I ignored the thought, sat cross-legged, couldn't get up. After the hour talk, I had to be carried to my room, which was a little embarrassing, <laughs> being carried out of the hall. <laughs> and then all night, I, mean, I was up all night with a kind of self-blame, and why wasn't I more careful, and I had a really busy summer schedule of traveling, and, and I was, how am I going to manage this? You know, but I couldn't put any weight on it. And then at a certain point in the midst of this mental turmoil, sort of a a little mantra arose in my mind, which I found so helpful over all these years. And what came to my mind was just this very simple statement, anything can happen Anytime. Just anything can happen any time. This is, this is just the nature of impermanence and uncertainty and ungovernableness. What was interesting for me in that phrase, that instead of it engendering a certain kind of paranoia and fear, oh my God, anything can happen any time, it was exactly the opposite. It was like by accepting the truth of it, I could let down the defenses against it, you know? So instead of living defensively worried anything could happen at any time, we just recognize, no, that's how things are. We can drop back into a place of ease, of openness, of acceptance. It made it so much easier. It really cut through all the self-judgment that had been arising in my mind about it. So in a similar recollection the Buddha offered some other reflections which highlight the universality of these experiences because we tend to, even when we do acknowledge them you know, or are living through them, it's very easy to collapse into personalizing them and sometimes with self-pity or self-judgment or as if We're the only ones going through this. So these are other reflections from the Buddha. Bhikkhus, what is subject to old age grows old. When this happens, the instructed noble disciple, the instructed noble disciples (laughs) reflects thus, I am not the only one for whom what is subject to old age grows old. I am not the only one for whom what is subject to illness grows ill. I am not the only one for whom what is subject to death dies. I am not the only one for whom what is subject to destruction is destroyed. I am not the only one for whom what is subject to loss is lost. And I find that Enlarging. You know, when we realize that these basic occurrences of life, and they're basic to all of us, when we reflect, I am not the only one, this is true of everyone. You know, and so it universalizes our experience. You know, we are all part of this great matrix of life and death and creation and destruction. And that's what all life is about. It constitutes the very essence of what it means to be alive. So through practice and reflection, we come to realize the aspect of non-self that is dukkha, which is its afflictive nature, its ungovernable nature, that things don't always follow our wishes and our preferences, but we can also come to realize the aspect of non-self that is freeing. This is what's very interesting about anatta or selflessness. Part of it reflects the truth of dukkha. It's not self because of the affliction and the ungovernableness, but there's an aspect of non-self that is ultimately liberating. And so it's very helpful to see and be with this other, this other side of anatta. Namely, that not a single element of this mind or body belongs to us. So even though the elements are afflictive and ungovernable, which is the bad news, the good news is but they don't belong to us. So the Buddha gave a very uh, direct example of this. He said, suppose, bhikkhus, people were to carry off the grass, the sticks, the branches, and foliage in this grove of trees, or to burn them, or to do with them as they wish. Would you think People are carrying us off, or burning us, or doing with us as they wish. No, venerable sir, because that is neither ourself nor what belongs to ourself. If somebody were carrying off the branches and the, the grasses and on this land, would you think they're carrying you off? No, it would, not, it would not affect you in that way because they're clearly not-self. So too, bhikkhus, the body is not yours, feelings are not yours, perceptions are not yours, volitional formations are not yours, consciousness is not yours. Abandon the attachment to them. When you have abandoned what is not yours, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. This is pretty radical, you know. You're not going to hear this very often out there in the world. <laughs> on a on a recent retreat, I was uh, just planning and thinking about a talk I was going to give in the teacher training program uh, about emptiness of self and non-self, and in just thinking about all this, the the Headline for the talk in my mind was the Buddha wasn't kidding. (laughs) I mean, this is so radical in terms of a different way of understanding what this mind, body are about because all of our conditioning takes them to be self, to be who we are. And the Buddha is pointing out that that's the basic delusion that is the cause of all the suffering in our lives. So then the question comes, given all these reminders and teachings, and the sutras are just filled, these are just a very few short examples of it. Given all these reminders and teachings of the impermanent, ungovernable nature of the physical elements, the body and all the mental elements, why is the sense of self, the view of self, the belief in self, the concept of self, why is it so strong in us? If it's not true, if the self really isn't there in the first place, how is it that it is created and how is it that we've gotten so enmeshed in this view. So there are many ways of explaining this. But one of the reasons that this view of self is so deeply embedded in the way we view things is because we rely on and are satisfied with very superficial perceptions. we just You know, just as we go through the world, perceiving the world, we're just skimming the surface in our perceptions. Get up in the morning, look in the mirror, recognize a certain appearance, and then create a concept designating the appearance, yep, that's me, that's Joseph, that's self. So there's a superficial perception of an appearance, and right away, automatically, yep, that's me. And we don't look more deeply into what is really there. So there are a few ways of looking more deeply. One, which some of you may have experience of. Have you ever stayed in a hotel, or maybe you have it at home, but I've seen them in hotels, of these cosmetic magnifying mirrors? Have you ever made the, have you ever made the mistake of looking in them? You know, we look in the the regular mirror. Yeah, the superficial look pretty good. You know, for however old one is. <laughs> but then you look in one of these mirrors. Oh my God, <laughs> we're seeing on a on another level, going even more deeper and more fundamental than that. When we really investigate what it is that we call the body. You know, what is there's. It's a collection of different systems. There's the skeletal system of all the bones, you know, there's the circulatory system, there's the nervous system, there's the organs. There's just all of these different systems which all together relate to something we call the body. But if we could really see the body for what it is, I probably wouldn't say. Oh yeah, the gallbladder is me. Oh, the liver is me. Yeah, no, but we just wrap it, all, wrap it all up very nicely in skin. Oh yeah, this is me. And we get attached to this body and we get attached to other people's bodies. I wonder how attached we would be if we had x-ray vision. <laughs> yeah, and really saw what was underneath it all. And it's what is really there. It's not making it up. It's not imagining it. It's just our perception is so superficial. Our perception is on the surface of things. And we don't take the time to say, okay, well, what really is this body? What is this body made of? And the corollary of this attachment to the body is the fear of losing it. And the fear of death. And the grief of other people that were close to dying, all because of a misperception of what this body actually is. And on an even deeper level, and this is just something I read, so you can check out to see if it's really true, but I read someplace that on the cellular atomic level the body's mostly empty space you know, on that level, and what this one article said anyway, and again, I can't guarantee its accuracy, but it was a very interesting point. It said if if all the matter of the body were condensed, it would be no larger than a speck of dust. That it's mostly empty space. So even if it's bigger than a speck of dust, but it's mostly empty space. So what is it that we're actually calling self? What are we claiming to be self here? Some specks of dust, you know. Again, it takes really reflecting and looking and investigating and exploring so that we're not just skimming the surface of our perception. So that's one way the sense of self arises, even though it's not actually there. A strong sense of self also happens when we're lost in or identified with our thoughts and emotions. And I'm sure you're very familiar with that experience now. How much of the day, even when we're practicing and trying to be aware and mindful, and often are, but how much of the day are we caught up in and lost in the stories of our minds, the dramas of our minds? So we identify with the thought, I'm thinking, I'm feeling, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm depressed, I'm bored, I'm excited. We're not seeing these mental activities for what they are, we're adding the I and mind to them. And that's very habitual, and as I said earlier, our very language keeps reinforcing this. this is how we speak conventionally. And I'm not suggesting we stop speaking this way, because it's, it's conventional and it's useful. But are we going to get caught in the limitations of language, or are we going to use our practice to actually go underneath that? And to see that with thoughts arising, with different emotions arising, all of that also, just like the physical elements, they arise when certain conditions are there. Conditions change, they disappear. The I and mine are extra. So there's a, an image, which found in some of the Tibetan teachings. Thoughts and emotions wander through the mind like clouds in the sky, having no roots, no home. And I like that. Thoughts and emotions wander through the mind like clouds in the sky, no roots, no home. And then I visualize what we usually do with our thoughts and emotions. It's like imagining a cloud with a root coming down, tethering it to the earth. It would be ridiculous. <laughs> you know, the clouds are not tethered. But that's what we're doing, (laughs) it's So you might imagine your mind, like the sky, and thoughts and emotions like clouds, and then just picture each of those thoughts with a, a little root coming down. That is the creation of the sense of self, that tethering. But in their nature, they are not tethered. There's no roots, no home. The thoughts are the thinkers the thoughts think themselves. It's not that there is someone behind them who's having them. The nature of the thought is to think. Love loves. The nature of love is to love. Fear fears. Anger angers. The I, the mind are extra. We're adding that to these experiences. But we're adding it and it's so habitual we don't even usually notice that we're adding it. So this is the essence of our practice and what mindfulness means. We want to be mindful of all these phenomena, seeing them as they are. Vipassana means seeing clearly. So we see a thought as a thought, untethered to anything or an emotion. There's no one behind them to whom they're happening what we call self, and we use that term, and it's fine to use that term on a conventional level, what we call self is simply the very rapid progression of all of these elements, the physical elements and thoughts and emotions, and and they create patterns, recognizable patterns. So we can recognize each other as distinct individuals. So the patterns are there, The problem is we reify the pattern into being a thing. So just an example of this. You know you go outside maybe on a summer day after a storm, a summer storm, and you see a rainbow. And it's beautiful and we see the rainbow. But what is a rainbow? Is a rainbow a thing in itself? It appears that way. But really, when we examine it more deeply, we see you no know, the rainbow is an appearance when certain conditions come together of light and water and moisture and air. You know, these conditions come together, a rainbow appears. Conditions change. Rainbow disappears. So right here is the the water and the air and the light don't belong to the rainbow. The rainbow is an appearance from the conjunction of these elements. Self is like rainbow. And with the rainbow, we see what we see. We see the rainbow, so it's not denying that level of it. But with the superficial perception, we reify the appearance into being some independent, existing thing. But when we look more carefully, we see there is no rainbow, apart from it being an appearance arising out of these conditions. The self, and we relate to self on the conventional level. I'm not suggesting that we don't. Just like rainbow, we see the rainbow, but we If we're wise, we understand actually what it is. Through our practice, we can begin to understand self as being like a rainbow. It's a pattern, a recognizable pattern of mental, physical elements working in a certain way together. But they don't belong to anyone. It's not that they belong to the self. that relationship of these elements is what we call self. Are we together on this? (laughs) Because this is so contrary to how the world understands things. You know, and that's kind of the brilliance and the enormous gift of the Buddhist teachings. You don't hear this very often. You know, he had such a penetrating understanding of the cause of dukkha, you know, of how we create this sense of self and then are imprisoned by it and the way to be released from it. So I'm doing a little last minute editing here. I was conditioned very strongly by my Kamala's and my first teacher's Munindraji. He was once here in California teaching at, uh, it was actually at Sylvia Borstein's house. And a lot of people came and were listening to him. And he began teaching at two in the afternoon and didn't stop until the last person left, which was ten at night. And I was kind of just walking in the back rooms. <laughs> okay, intro, let's. So I could go on for quite a while, but I won't. <laughs> Remembering that. So just kind of in bringing this to some kind of conclusion. Uh, there was one Tibetan teacher who just had a, a wonderful way of encapsulating the understandings of ways we do experience this as self and ways of realizing the selfless nature. And this will be a bit of a paraphrase because I didn't bring uh, the quote with me. It's something like it's not that the self is not real. It is real but it's not really real. <laughs> you exaggerate it. So I love that. It is real. On, on the conventional relative level, it's real and we relate to it and, and all of that is fine. But do we take the next step of realizing, yes, it's real, but it's not really real? So that's, that's the whole movement of our practice to get underneath the appearance of things and to really see the true nature of what this mind and body is about. And it's not about believing any of this. You know, all of these words and all of the Buddha's words are an invitation for us to look for ourselves. And that, for me, and as some of the other teachers mentioned, is what's so inspiring about these teachings. You know, there's nothing we have to believe. It's just to look and then we discover this for ourselves. So the Buddha gave a very simple and direct teaching to his son Rahula about this and I think we can use these, these words that he gave to his son really as our own mantra of liberation said that every aspect of mind and body, every aspect of mind and body should be seen as it is with perfect wisdom. This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. This is not I, this is not mine, this is not myself. It would be interesting as you go through the day and as you feel caught by various whatever, you know, sights or sounds or thoughts or emotions or whatever it is, whenever the mind feels contracted and caught up in selfing, maybe you could remember these words, see everything with perfect wisdom. This is not I, this is not mine, this is not myself. And then something quite extraordinary happens, because very surprisingly Through a deepening realization of selflessness, we develop a growing sense of connection. Because on the deepest level, we realize there is no one there to be separate. And on that level, selflessness and love become the same thing. So it all comes together in the most beautiful way. I'll just close with some words from Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, who was really one of the greatest of the Dzogchen masters of the last century, Tibetan, Tibetan master. He said, when you realize the empty, selfless nature of phenomena, when we realize the empty, selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So we could say that compassion is the activity of emptiness. Compassion is the activity of selflessness. And this is where, as Kamala was saying the other night, wisdom and compassion become the two wings of the Dharma. And they become the two wings of our lives. You know, we're living in their expression. Let's sit for just a few moments. So if you don't keep sitting until you're fully enlightened, please notice why you move. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.